Welcome to episode 235 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Lisa Hillhouse. Lisa served in the Air Force. Today she works as an independent educational consultant and has the opportunity to help the next generation of service members as they consider the military. She joined the Air Force through the Reserve Officer Training Corps program, ROTC, and she served as a logistics officer and then as a personnelist. She left active duty and continued her career in the reserve and during that time got to work with the academy and the selective service. She shared about her experience in the Air Force and some of the things she learned and a little bit about what she's doing today. And don't forget, you can always listen to Women of the Military on Wreaths Across America Radio at 7 p.m. Eastern on Fridays and 11 a.m. Eastern on Saturday mornings. You can listen in on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. With that out of the way, let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome to the show, Lisa. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks, Amanda. It is a great pleasure to be here today. Yeah, and we connected on LinkedIn, and I'm just really excited to talk to you about your experience in the military. Absolutely. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Sure. So I'm a college advisor, and I work with kids who want to go in the military, and I always feel like they have these big, grand reasons, and they've been wanting to be in the military since they were in third grade and saw the Thunderbirds, things like that. I'm a totally different story. So I didn't seek the military. It came to me. So I had some family members uh, who were in Vietnam and World War II who were drafted, but no one who had been career military. And I went to an all-girls Catholic high school, so nobody was going to academies or ROTCs in the 80s, things like that. And then when I went off to college, I had a big sister mentor in the dorm my first semester, and she was the Air Force ROTC cadet recruiter. And she was a friend of mine, Kara Agajanian, give her a shout out. And she said, you know, you're a leader here on campus and you're really involved and, you know, you like a challenge, you're a hard worker. I think you should join ROTC. And I knew a little bit about it because of her, but I think I'm the kind of person that jumps right in. I, I go with my gut and you know quickly weigh the options and commit. And so I started that program my second semester of college, and I never looked back. That's awesome. I love hearing that you met someone, like you had that mentor, and then she's like, and not only was she like, you should do ROTC, but like, here are the reasons why I think it would be a good fit for you. And so that made it like, easy to try it out. And did you get to try it out before you were on scholarship or how did that all work? I did. So when I went off to college, no one in my family had gone before. And so they didn't have the money to help pay for it. And it just was really different than what our family had done. So um, I didn't go in with the intention of doing it with a scholarship. I didn't know about that. But once I got in, I did compete for it. Funny story. So I competed once, wasn't selected, competed my sophomore year, was selected. And then I got a call at four o'clock the day before I went to sign my papers. And there was the Brown-Rudman legislation that had passed, and they had rescinded the military scholarships as part of that. And so, you know, that was like, no, because, you know, I was working a ton, 60 hours a week in the summer, student loans, you know, all that. Um, but I did compete a third time and get a scholarship. So, yes, the Air Force paid my second half of undergrad and then also for graduate school as well. 
that's that's like the worst like right before you're supposed to go in and and you're like oh, I have this weight lifted off my shoulders and then it just came crashing back down. Absolutely. Um, you know, it all works out. You know, I was really excited about being in RRTC. Like I said, I would have done it without the scholarship. I love the people. Um, like one thing that was so meaningful for me is I didn't have those mentors in my family who were like, hey, you should reach really high for this. You know, you could go here and do this. And I think that became the second family that really got me through college. And just knowing like this is the potential you have. And, you know, when I was in college, my goal was to live and work overseas and to help people, which I think sounds very simplistic. But when I think about what I did in the Air Force, that is a lot of it. You know, I was in Europe and I was in Asia. Um, but really part of working in education today is because those people were so pivotal to me, you know, back in the day. Yeah, that really resonates with my story. I feel like when I joined ROTC, it was like joining a family and like having like all this community, people who were like minded and we like pushed each other to do different things. And so that's really cool to hear that your experience was similar. Definitely. I mean, the challenges, you know, there were things like, I don't know if you did the 54 commands and drill. That was not my forte, no, but, you know, the academic challenges, the physical fitness, the leadership, um, pushing yourself, you know, and it was also such a different environment than coming from a girl's school as well. You know, there were a couple of female cadets in our core, but not a lot. Yep, there were not a lot of females <laughs> in my my core either. So you spent your time in ROTC and then you were able to commission. Mm -hmm. So what was that transition like from ROTC being in college to joining the military? Ooh, so, um, you know, going into the military was a really positive thing, but I think in ROTC, I thought the Air Force would be this utopia, you know, it would just be endless opportunity. And, um, you know, when I came in, this was back in 1989, which is over 30 years ago. So I want to, you know, preface it with that. But I didn't think there'd be sexism or racism or ageism. And I think in my early years, I encountered some of that, you know, with some leaders. I think you really learn more from the bad leaders than the good ones. You know, the good ones are great. They're so supportive. You really enjoy that time. But I think you really stretch and grow when you have to encounter, you know, those obstacles. But I think I did, you know, have the opportunity. I moved a lot initially, you know, um, after tech school. I was in the Midwest, then I went to Asia, then I went to Europe. And so, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, you're in a job six months, you should go to a different office, try that for six months, you know, another one, then PCS to a new location and start all over. So it was always a good challenge. I loved having that family, you know, it really, um, especially overseas, you're so close with, with each other. I love the opportunity to travel. Like I've been over all but a couple states, you know, like several dozen countries. And I think I had a chance to really try a lot of different career fields out, you know, so I originally went into a field that wasn't my first choice, which was logistics. Um, then I was able to go into personnel, which is what I was hoping to do. And then I got a special duty assignment teaching Air Force ROTC, which is part of how, you know, I landed where I am today. But I think, you know, through all those highs and lows, um, you just learn so much about who you are. And I think that prepares you for life down the road, for sure. 
Yeah, so you mentioned that you went into logistics and that wasn't the career field that you were hoping for. So what was, was did you learn what job you were going to do when you were in ROTC? And like, how did you deal with being disappointed? Sure. So it was really interesting. Um, one of my former ROTC commanders called me up and he said, hey, I heard you got logistics. You're going to be great. I was in logistics and I was good at it. I just didn't enjoy it. It wasn't my passion. So, you know, I went off to tech school. Um, I actually met my then husband my first day in the Air Force. We were sweet mates <laughs> in tech school. And so he was in logistics, but wanted that field. Um, and so, you know, for several years when we were active duty, um, I stayed in longer, but we had the same field. So that presented some challenges. You'd have to go to a base that had two base transportation units or try to find a special assignment. But it was good to have somebody who knew what you were doing and you can come home and, you know, kind of share those things. One time in Germany, um, you know, I was running a shop and then the next week later he took it over from me. So I was glad it wasn't the other way around. I just, I think that's hard. You know, one day there's uh, Lieutenant Hill House and the next day there's a different Lieutenant Hill House. Well, and you talked about the challenge of like being in the same career field, because I think sometimes people are like, oh, if I'm in the same career field as my spouse, then we can go everywhere together. But especially as officers, it's like, no, you can't. And it there becomes these challenges of like, where do we put you? How do we make it work? And so, I mean, dual military is hard. No matter it how is. you slice it. It is. And then too, if somebody is rated, if someone's a pilot, the other person's career field is typically um, secondary to the placement. And so sometimes that other person may be more interested in their field than the person who's in the rated job. So I've definitely seen that. Um, I think you're always looking to the people around you to see like what's next, you know, like the people when you're single who are married or when you're married, who's going to have kids. And yeah, there's... There's definitely challenges. So how long were you both doing logistics before you switched to personnel? So probably about four or five years. And then um, I moved into the personnel side, but with an aerial port squadron. And so that was great because I really understood what people did. Um, and then I moved over to be an exec officer, had some time with social actions. And then um, my then spouse left the military and we moved back stateside. And then that's when I went in and started teaching Air Force ROTC. That makes sense. Gives you a little bit more stability. It definitely does. And we had family in that area. So we, you know, we had moved so much. We were really hoping to be near them. And I think the logistics kind of came back because at the end of my ROTC assignment, I had extended and then um, I was supposed to go to public affairs school and then the transportation logistics people wouldn't let me out of that. <laughs> so that was part of my decision to leave active duty and to go into the reserves. And I think that happens more than you think. Yeah, I think so too. I think one of the things that when I was listening, you were like talking about like all the different jobs that you got to do and how like you moved out of logistics, but that background of being in logistics helped you understand the Air Force in a way that someone who served in personnelist as a personnelist the whole time wouldn't have that same experience. So it's interesting to hear like there's lots of different opportunities. And if you're in a career field, you don't like it, that doesn't mean that you can't learn something from it and that you have to stay in that 
Perfect. And sometimes they make you stay and then you're like, well, I'm going to get out or I'm going to do reserves. And I think too, uh, going back to, to grad school helped kind of transition more to the counseling, human relations, you know, side of things too. And so, and the Air Force and the military in general is so good about getting you back into school and continuing the education. So I knew eventually I would get out of logistics, you know, and find another path. And I did. And so you said you switched from active duty to reserves. What was that transition like? So um, initially, that was easy getting out. We um, we were hoping to start a family, and I was pregnant when I got out. Just had you know found out I was pregnant, and I had done an internship in my last job at a local university, and then I was hired there for a job. So I had my job, you know, went right on my terminal leave all those different things. But I think when one of the things I was doing with my job was launching um, an adult degree completion program. So I had a lot of autonomy. I was able to work four days a week full time, you know, once I had our first child and things like that. But I remember once I had a feedback session with my boss and she was like, you know, the other people on the team are really intimidated because you're really good at your job and you're confident and you're efficient and it makes them look bad. And so I thought, you know, these are the values that we have in the military and that we're always striving for and to, you know, mission first, people always, all those different things. And I wasn't in a supervisory role there. It was a little different role. I had just, you know, myself, but it was weird to see, okay, I guess you have to maybe think carefully about the people, you know, you're working around and higher ed, um, at that school, you know, it was just a, a different personality. I mean, I worked almost entirely with women, whereas in my career, I was often the only female officer in the squadron, but not always. Um, I was definitely one of the few females in, in a group or when I'd go to a wing meeting and one of the few female officers. So it definitely took some time getting used to that. But then I went into the reserves and I started working at the Air Force Academy. And that I was there for 17 years, and that was one of my favorite jobs. And just getting to work with high schoolers and, and career fairs and college days and recruiting and nomination boards and things like that, um, I love that work. And so when um, I had a few more children, and at that point I wasn't working full-time, but I was doing a substantial amount of work with the reserves, and that was a really good work balance. Like I liked being home, but I really liked having something I did for me and still continue serving in the military. I really didn't want to you know, give that up. And so I think it definitely gave me something that really mattered to me, but also I had a chance to give back to my local community too. Um, so I think I took a lot of pride with that and just really grateful for that time in my life too. And just the skills that it taught me. Yeah. And I want to go back to when you got that feedback, because I think that's something that, uh, veterans can relate to, because I know that <laughs> when I was volunteering with a group of women, I like stuck my head in and was like, we need to get this, this, this done. And they were like, hi, how are you? And I was like, oh yeah, you're not we have to get out of that like military mindset of like get the mission done and like I was also annoyed because I was like we just need to get the work done and they like totally stopped me in my tracks and like got me out of that mission focus and so I I think that story is really funny to tell because it's just funny to hear and like it's funny because like 
she's giving you feedback and you're like, is this negative feedback? Because I feel like these are all positive things. Like It feels like it's negative for them. Right. Exactly. And this past weekend, I saw a friend that I was stationed with in Europe and we hadn't seen each other in 30 years. And it's like no time had gone by at all. And I was telling him that story. And, you know, he talked about how when he got out, he did military consulting, but also, you know, worked in in education, too. And he's like, it is such a different beast, you know. Um, And the people I work with now in education, I I really adore. And, And part of it may have been like, the dynamic, you know, in that office. Um, but I remember once we did a Myers-Briggs test and they had all the people in the office and they were clustered together in a couple little squares. And I was like the one off. And the woman said to me, do you ever feel like you're pushing a boulder up a hill and your, your way of doing things is different than others? And, you know, do you feel like you move at a different pace? And I thought, this is exactly how I feel in this job. You know, and so it was good to get that self-awareness, but it's not like that everywhere. But I do remember, too, getting out of the military and thinking sometimes people worry about things that seem really small and inconsequential to us. And I remember, you know, being abroad and, you know, having to call a mother and talk about the funeral arrangements for her airmen who died in an accident and, you know, working on the flight line when we had an aircraft incident and, you know, being there when we had a weapons incident and just how, you know, those were things where it could have gone, you know, a whole other different direction. So sometimes the pace of the civilian world seemed very different. You know, and now I've been out a while. I I don't feel that as much, but I think in the military, you have a bigger perspective um, and you don't sweat the small stuff as much. Yeah, I did an interview a while ago with Crystal McFadden and she was talking about brain development. And the final stage of brain development is like 18 to 22. And the military has like tap and like, you know, the transition classes and they're always focused on like getting a job. But until I talked to her about that, I had no idea that like the final stage of my childhood development happened from the perspective of the military. And so it it makes me as a veteran feel a lot better to realize like my final stage of development was in this rigid, get the mission done, like, and that's how I learned to operate as an adult. And so the fact that my civilian friends aren't like that makes a lot of sense and it's not like I'm weird and they're nor or they're normal or you know it's just the final stage of development left like a big impact and like as I've left the military and I've you know got to interact with more people who are civilians it's changed how I operate and I think makes me more normal like a civilian but I think veterans need to know that that's something that they might struggle with when they leave the military. And thinking about maybe the soldiers or airmen, Marines who have one tour who get out at that age too. Yeah. I never really thought about that. Um, it is, it is really interesting. Yes. <laughs> we, we move at a different pace. And I think too, when I was in the reserves and I had all these friends who were first time moms, um, And I was the only person they knew in the military, like the only person they had ever met. They knew nothing. And so it always felt like you were this ambassador. And so it was an interesting role too, you know, because I'd be the only person walking around town in my uniform when I was, you know, going off to do a presentation or something like that. Right. So you're always standing up. I just met someone and she's like, I'm so fascinated. I've never met anyone who served in the military. And I was like, oh, that's, 
weird because like I've met so many people, but it makes like growing up, I would have had the same reaction because I didn't know anyone in the military. But we get like so engrossed in that, you know, lifestyle that we we have friends who served in the military because we served in the military. And it makes the veteran community seem a lot bigger than it actually is. And then you meet someone who's not connected and they're like, I have so many questions. I want to know all about it. And I'm like, oh, it's just my normal life. Like, Right. We, we forget how lucky we are and how special it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that's always interesting to me, sometimes I'll go off to like a doctor's appointment at a you know, non-military hospital and I'll see the Vietnam vets or the Korean vets with their hats on and I'll thank them for their service. And sometimes somebody will ask me like, oh, were you in too? But I've met a couple older gentlemen who said, you know, women are in the military now, you know, who were in so long ago. And that's just shocking to me. You know, women have been in the military for a very long time in different roles and capacities, you know, formally and informally. But it's shocking to me that there's still people this day and age that may not realize, you know, women are wing commanders, women could be in combat, we're flying fighters and things like that. Yeah, when I started the podcast, I didn't really know any history about military women because it wasn't really taught when I went through ROTC. It was all focused on like what, you know, the generals had done and they were all male. So it was all about the history of the military was the history of men. And through this process, I've learned so much about like the deep, rich history and like how long you know, it's not just nurses who served during World War One and World War Two, which is what I thought growing up. And it's just fascinating to, like, learn all these things. We were talking about the interview with, why am I forgetting her name? The author of The Women with Silver Wings. And how, like, that book about the wasp, about Jackie Cochran, about um, all the different women who served as wasp and the impact they made on World War II and how few people know those stories. Exactly. And I've met a few of those women and, you know, they're deceased now, but they were so amazing and such trailblazers. And, you know, I had the chance to to have my daughter meet a few, daughters meet a few of them too. And they were just like, wow, it's like someone's, you know, great grandma. And I was like, yeah, but you heard what they did and, and how neat that is. So. Yeah, another great book about the wasps, which I've also interviewed the author, was Erin Miller's Final Fight, Final Fight. Her grandmother was a wasp, and when she died, they wouldn't let her be buried at Arlington. And so her family advocated to get the law changed so that she could be buried at Arlington or interned at Arlington. And I'm friends with her on Facebook uh since doing the interview and she just got her private pilot's license in the last couple weeks and it's like she's carrying on the legacy of her grandma and like it's just crazy to like read the book and like she was a lawyer working in dc and like now she's an advocate for the wasp and sharing their story and she does all these amazing things so she's her interview is the first year so maybe that'll be one of the ones that i redo in the summer because Unlikely ally, right? I love that feeling from a different place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, she's she didn't serve, but when that happened, she like kind of became the spokesperson for her family, and then she cataloged it all in a book. And it's just it's a really a really good book. It has history, and you learn about like how Congress works. I was like learning how Congress worked while going through the book, and it was really it was really good. So you served in the reserves for how long? 
And what was that experience like? Um, so for 17 years, so um, I was at the Air Force Academy then. Um, at the tail end, I was at the Selective Service doing re- um, recruiting draft board members. And so another very unusual job, but um, it was great. So one of the things I really loved about my reserve unit, I think I touched on it before, but we had so many women in that unit and most of our commanders were women. And so it was a nice full circle, you know, starting off in a place where you were one of the only women and then having all these leaders and how commonplace that was. Um, And one thing I think is really neat about those ladies, um, you know, we've been friends for, oh my gosh, since the late nineties, all but one have children. The other one is a dog mom. So we call them the ALO moms because they were all admission liaison officers. And we've raised our kids together and we've seen each other through all sorts of different life events, you know, um, marriages, divorces, having children, losing a child, you know, job changes and things like that. Um, And it was just such a great support system, you know, to have these women. And most of them are pilots and they came in, you know, back when I did like the late 80s, early 90s, when spots like in the Air Force were reserved by gender if you wanted to be a pilot or a navigator. And so I remember one year there were seven spots for females, you know, but like over 550 for males. And so how good did you have to be to be one of those seven? And I remember one year I knew like four of those women, like we crossed paths in different capacities and just what groundbreakers they were. And they don't think of themselves that way you know, one of the only women at UPT. And, you know, that's back when most women were flying tankers because, you know, up until um, 93, you couldn't fly fighters or bombers. And so things have opened up so dramatically. Um, But they, I love that they were also, you know, recruiting young men and women to go in the military and being mentors to them, you know, and then being mentors as like first officers and captains. You know, and I think if, if you ever see any of the reels about pilots today, you see a lot more women. But, you know, back in the day, it, it was like the military. They were one of the few women who were there. Yeah, I just finished a book by Eileen Bjorkman. She wrote Fly Girls Revolt. It's about the women who kicked in the door to allow women to serve as a combat pilots. And it's such a good book because it talks about the history and like I mean I I knew there was discrimination against women but I didn't realize like the depths of the discrimination and the challenges that faced and like how hard it was even though the Gulf War happened and women were like shown how important they were to the military as like they tried to pull women out and the commanders were like no we need them to be out overseas and there was like all these interesting dynamics and then they did study after study after study that every time the study came back and said women can be in the military it's fine and they would be like let's do a new study and I felt I feel because I served in Afghanistan in 2010 when women couldn't be in combat units but I was in combat and when they announced that they were making the change and they also said we're going to do a study I was like we don't need a study like there's women in combat right now like and reading that yeah and reading that book I was like oh this is why they did another study this is and she did such a good job of like interweaving her own story and her experience while also like including 
all this rich history and other women and it's a great book. So definitely. And I mean, I've seen that too. I remember, um, again, this was over 30 years ago, but I remember being told as a Lieutenant, we would do a lot of mobility operations and there was a job I wanted. Um, and instead of running the passenger terminal, you would go up to this transportation control unit and you would oversee cargo passengers, et cetera. And I said to my boss, like, sir, you know, I really want to work in the TCU. And I remember him coming back and saying, Lieutenant Karamis, everyone knows a female lieutenant can't work in the TCU. And I remember thinking, no, no one knows that because it's it's a job for a junior officer. There, you know, you are in a control tower looking over the ground. There's, you know, absolutely no reason. But it was that, you know, sexism at the time. And I think like to add insult to injury, um, shortly after the Gulf War kicked off, and my then boyfriend had visited who was in the same job as me, but at another base. And he was like, oh, Lieutenant Hillhouse, you should come work in the TCU with me. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> I just have to take a deep breath, you know? And he had normally done the TCU at his base during mobility, but it was just those, those barriers, you know? And so just being patient and being like, okay, I know I'm really good at my job and I'm just going to have to do really well at this until I get that person retires or moves on or a PCS. So I think, you know, learning to hold, hold your tongue and be patient, you know, I think is a big skill that helps. I don't think that's an easy skill. I don't think I was always successful with that as a brand new Lieutenant, but I do remember when our unit was deploying to the Gulf, um, you know, we were sitting in a staff meeting, same boss, and there was another officer who was about to retire and myself and then civilians. And, you know, he said, we need someone to deploy. We don't know where they're going, but they're leaving at 3 a.m. tomorrow. And I was like, I'm in, you know, I didn't even think about it. I mean, my only thought was I can't send, you know, my airman with this other guy. He's about to retire. He doesn't want to go. I really feel like I could do a better job taking care of them. Um, and he was like, I super appreciate it because I don't want to go, <laughs> you know, and uh, it was that I don't know how it was for you, but I went home that night. I called my boyfriend. I called my family. Um, I was the mobility officer in my unit. And so every month I was in charge of the bag drag. Do you have your shot record? Do you have your will? But of course, no one checked my stuff because I ran the bag drag and, you know, I was scrambling to get everything together, your chem gear, et cetera. Um, and, you know, when I reached out to my family and boyfriend, everybody was so angry. I had, you know, volunteered because it was unknown, right? We're going to war. We have no idea what's going to happen with the scuds, with, you know, radiation. And, and I think that is what made me fearful that night. Like it, I didn't have that initial fear. I was just like, I'm doing my job. I want to take care of my people. And I felt for me, that was a really long night. Like, gosh, I really hope I didn't make a mistake doing this. Like, I know I'm doing the right thing, but I'm really hoping I come back, you know? Um, and I, um, got to the base at one, you know, with ready to go, feeling confident. And my commander pulls me aside and he's like, no, the other guy's going because when they sent the passenger manifest, the Saudis are like, no women, you know, we only want a woman if that is the last person you can send. And so 
you know, it was that case again where I was like, no, I want to go. I'm totally capable of this. And I had other friends who deployed like to Egypt and to other parts of the Gulf. Um, and they did have very restrictive experiences. Like they couldn't drive. They had to be escorted. They had to wear, you know, headscarves and so on. Um, and it made it really difficult to do their job. But I was angry for weeks because <laughs> I, mean, I really wanted to go. And I thought, we're trained for this. This is what we do. Like, why are we being, you know, denied? But of course, you're going to another country, right? As their guest, you know, to protect them. So it, it was, I was angry for a while about that, you know, but we did wind up deploying like half of our base and everyone came back, you know, safe. And I was definitely sending friends and, you know, people who worked for me. Um, so it, it definitely was one of those get real moments because you just don't know, like, is this the last time I'm going to see them? Yeah. And that challenge of like not deploying like that has like an impact on your career going forward. Like, obviously you did well, but like that still could be like something that you missed out on an opportunity to like grow in your career and like different things. And that was like, something that really limited women. And then even women who did deploy, you talked about the challenges they had, like not being able to drive and different things like that. And when I got tasked with my deployment, one of the other male lieutenants told the commander I should go instead of her. And the commander pulled me aside and had me come into his office and he gave me the option. And he said that it was like completely my choice. And I felt like I was tasked to go the other guy was also recovering from an injury, so he was technically non-deployable, but he wanted to go. And so I said, no, I'll go on the deployment. I feel like it's my responsibility to go. And the commander was like, I didn't want to send him, but I also wanted you to have the option. And I felt like it was interesting because it had it been a different guy task, would they have done that? No, but at least I had the opportunity to make the final decision and was able to go on the deployment. And it's interesting. It was someone kind of in your peer group too. Right. I Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you see that it was a non-traditional thing. And like you said, you don't know what it would have been like or what you could have done or what would have happened. I mean, I think things happen for a reason. I'm a big believer in that. Um, so it just, you know, wasn't my time or place to go. Um, but I appreciate you going and I'm glad you had that opportunity. I know it was not easy at all. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more challenging in ways than I didn't expect. But overall, it like changed my life. And I mean, I think my deployment has given me the confidence to like start the podcast because there's a little bit of like, I want people to know what women have done because so many people question my experience of deploying overseas and during when combat exclusion was happening and so that has been really impactful on my life so I'm really thankful for that opportunity and yeah I agree things happen for a reason and can't really like question what happened but it is just crazy to think about like all the ways that women were limited and how far they've come exactly and sometimes I don't share those stories with my students because I'm like that's the past but I think it's important to know where we came from and then protect those rights going forward. Right. And, you know, I, sometimes people will say, you know, my own children aren't in the military and I would love if they were like, I would have no hesitation sending them in today. You know, I think it's just so transformational and I think the armed forces are a different place too. Um, I think they've always been amazing, but you know, 
different challenges at each time. Um, but no, I think it's important to just as humans, like to do things that scare you, you know, to put yourself outside your comfort zone. Yeah. And the military has to be right for you. Like it, I don't think there are a lot of like generational, you know, people who follow in their parents' footsteps, but I think that there has to just be something that's right for you. And, you know, leads, you can't, you can't push someone into the military. You can push them in, but they're not going to have as good of an experience as if they they're make not it stay. Yeah. No, no. And I, I know people I served with who were pushed in. You know, sometimes they stayed, sometimes they didn't. Right. Yeah, it, it is not the right thing. Sometimes students will say to me, I'm not fortunate enough to come from a like a long line of military members. But I've had students say, I want to create like a new legacy for my family moving forward, which I think is really inspiring to me. It kind of goes back to who are these great kids <laughs> I work with who are so mature at 17. Yeah, I got a chance to go to the ROTC unit that I was in in college, and they asked such deep questions and like had so many insights. And I was like, are you sure you're like 20? <laughs> like, I can't believe how like, you know, just remarkable you guys are and like the things that you're thinking about and planning for. I was totally clueless. When I think I we were was... innocent back in the day. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we didn't have the internet to <laughs> to That is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. So after a long time, 17 years in the reserves, you decided to hang up your uniform for the last time and leave the military altogether. So what was that experience like? Sure. So um, for me, I always felt like to be successful in the military, you have to be able to give 110%. You know, you got to go anywhere, do anything on a moment's notice. And, you know, when I left active duty the, to go in the reserves, I felt like I was ready for a change. And um, when I was in the reserves, I had gone back to grad school a second time and did a program in college advising. And I had, you know, transitioned to work with a selective service doing recruiting for them. And I launched my business and it took off really quickly. And I really didn't have the time to fully commit to the reserves. Um, and so that's, you know, when I decided to retire and I was getting close to the time for my rank for Lieutenant Colonel. Um, and so, you know, leaving that behind and starting my business and um, helping kids get into college, but also specializing in the military you know, I was starting to grow that part of the business and it feels like where it is now, nine years later, um, most of the students I work with want to become military officers. So sometimes they're going to officer training school, but usually the academies or ROTC. And so I'm doing a lot of what I did when I was active duty and in the reserves. I'm better compensated now. <laughs> I can stay in one place. I don't have to move and, you know, things like that. Um, but I love that because I feel like in a way I'm still serving and I'm um, raising the next generation of leaders, you know, and some of those kids don't get in or decide not to go into ROTC for whatever reason. Maybe they're not, you know, medically qualified, but they're such wonderful young people. And I love that I can still mentor them and, you know, help them figure out what am I good at? What is life in the military like? You know, what can I explore? Um, so that's really meaningful. So I, I feel like I haven't totally left. Yeah, you're still connected. And you're helping the next generation, which I mean, I wrote my book, A Girl's Guide to Military Service, just because I wanted to make a way and make a path for the next generation of women so that they could have a resource that I wish I had when I was joining. And so 
you're kind of bridging that gap in a different way of like providing the resources and is there anything else from your time in the military or your transition out that you wanted to talk about that we haven't had a chance to talk about? Um, sure. I think we were talking earlier about there's these characteristics you develop in the military, you know, as a leader, like that grit, that being proactive, um, that being accountable, that having that integrity. And I think those are skills, you know, if you come in for five years or for 30 years, I think those are ones that serve you well, you know, once you you transition successfully. Um, I think for me, like those are all things that helped me after divorcing and kind of starting that new life. And then also for launching my business, because I think I always thought of it as a business from day one. And I was always all into it, just like when you're in the military, you know, you have that, that like success mindset, you know, I think... Um, the military too, like you have plan A and plan B, and hopefully you're not going to plan C, but you expect the worst, but you prepare for the best, right? And so I think that helps too, like in life and in business planning as well. Um, and I think those aren't mindsets I see, you know, profusely in the world around me. And so um, I'm just grateful for those experiences and, um, you know, really um, so appreciative that I got to serve. You know, like when people say thank you, I say it was an honor and a privilege because it wasn't something I expected and I feel very grateful for it. Um, you know, I think there's so many ups, there's a couple downs, but I think that's anything in life, you know? And uh, I think, you know, I love that you're working to encourage young women to continue to come in and yes, you know, do the research, but take that leap. Yeah. And I do like to end the interview with what advice would you give? And I feel like you started to answer, but do you have anything else that you want to add about advice? So I guess a couple things. Um, I did start it, but I had a, a ALO friend who is a man, but his one piece of advice is always you have two ears and one mouth. And so listen twice as much as you speak, um, which I think is great advice for young people. I think, too, when you go into the military, you have to be who you are and nobody else is you. And maybe you aren't what people expect the military to be. Like sometimes I encounter people and they're like, you're friendly and you're outgoing. That's not how people in the military are. And I'm like, no, people are. We're not that different. And so I think be true to who you are. Um, and I think don't be afraid to challenge yourself. You know, I, I personally like a big scary goal, you know, whether it's like a revenue goal or like mastering a new skill. Like I just started playing golf. I like to do something that is a little bit outside your comfort zone. So I think the military, you know, really requires that. So, you know, that's my advice. I think that's great advice. And I feel like you brought up a theme that I keep hearing from the women of like, be yourself be you. You don't have to change who you are to be in the military. And I think that's something, maybe it's sticking out because it's something I wish someone had told me when I was joining the military. I mean, I ended up finding myself and I was able to figure out who I was through joining the military. And which is kind of, you know, interesting that that worked out, but I was able to figure out who I was and I it really had an impact on me. And it did force me to set I didn't set the goals the military be like, you're going to do this. And I'm like, I don't think so. They're like, yes, you are. And then and then I would do it and be like, oh, I can do way more than I ever thought. And so I think your advice has so many like 
good takeaways of like what military life is like and the good things that can come. Thank you. And when you were talking, it made me think about how when I was younger, I always thought of people in the military as these really old men, you know, and the military is so much more than that. But I think, you know, when you're young and you're 22, those captains seem old and those majors, oh my God, they're so old, right? And then all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm that rank or I'm that age, you know, but um, yes, I think we are much stronger and more diverse military, you know, in every way now. And that's really great. So. Yeah. And I think it keeps changing for the better. And I know there's like a struggle with recruiting right now and the military is working, but I think Right now, like it is hard for the military to recruit, but it's also forcing them to relook at things, which I don't think is a bad thing. So I think things are going to continue to change the the policies since I've gotten out with, you know, the hair, the ponytails and even maternity leave being extended. There's a lot of positive things that have been changing and I think will continue to change. So Maternity flight suits, family benefits, all that. Yeah, there's... There's so many different changes. Yes. It's almost hard to keep up sometimes. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed getting to talk to you and to just make this connection. So thanks so much. Thank you, Amanda. It was an honor. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget that you can check out all the episodes of Women of the Military podcast on your favorite podcast app, or you can head over to my website, www.airmentomom.com.